Thank you for joining us today. We'll continue our study of the Gospel of Mark. We'll be discussing the events that took place in Jesus' last hours on the cross, as well as the time between his death and resurrection. So if you'll open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verse 33, we'll begin our lesson. Good morning. Why don't we get started with prayer? Our Father in heaven, I thank you again for this group. It's so meaningful to me to gather each week to study your word with this group. And as we draw near to the end of our study of the Gospel of Mark and continue our study of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, I just want to tell you how thankful we are for sending your Son to save us and to make possible our reconciliation with you. We are all messed up sinners, and yet you sent your Son to die and pay the debt that there was no way that we could ever pay. And you have provided a pathway for us to reconcile with you and have a personal relationship with you through Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. We don't deserve it at all, and your grace is so apparent. And we thank you for that gift and the gift you extend to anyone who will just acknowledge that they're a sinner. They can't get right with you on their own. They believe in their heart that Jesus is your son, that you sent to die and pay the debt for our sins and provide a pathway for us to have eternal life with you. And we thank you so much for that gift. As we continue our study today, I ask that you speak through me, speak through anyone else who speaks up, just guide our discussion today and continue to transform us into the people that you want us to be. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's continue with our study of the Gospel of Mark. We left off in chapter 15 at verse 32. And up until that point, we really spent our time last time talking about the things that were going on up to about noon on Friday of Jesus' crucifixion. And so that's where we'll pick up. It's about noon. Jesus is on the cross in our study. Also, last time I mentioned some of the things that were going on during those first three hours of Jesus being on the cross from 9 a.m. to 12 noon. And so now we're going to pick up in verse 33, and it says, And when the sixth hour had come, so it's 12 noon, that's what the sixth hour is, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. So from 12 noon to 3 p.m., it says that the whole land was dark. It was totally dark. Now, many non-biblical historians try to say that this darkness was just some type of solar eclipse, but that's impossible because solar eclipses only occur when there's a new moon, and Passover is always during a full moon, so that's impossible. This darkness was from the power of God, and it was judgment. It was judgment as Jesus bore the full fury of God's wrath, and he bore each of our sins, all of our temptations during that time. That's what was going on. Verse 34, And at the ninth hour, so now this is at 3 p.m., Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This is in Aramaic. And it is actually written in Psalm 22, verse 1, which prophesies that Jesus would say this a thousand years prior to this. I turn to Psalm 22, and it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This was a Psalm of David written a thousand years before. And during this time, as Jesus bore 
all of our sins. Jesus was without sin, but he took on all of our sins, all of our temptations, everything that we've done, past, present, and future. He bore the full fury of God's wrath. And during this time, God the Father gave him no comfort or relief. Jesus was alone while he bore all of our sins and all of our temptations. Now, God did not depart from Jesus because if he departed from Jesus, then the Trinity is broken. But God essentially sat on his hands while his son bore the Father's wrath for all the sins that Jesus took on for us. And God the Father didn't rescue Jesus from his suffering during that time on the cross. For some support of that, I'll turn to Psalm 22, verse 24, where it says, For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, neither has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. So God didn't abandon Jesus in his death. He allowed Jesus to take on that wrath to pay the debt for our sins. So as Jesus was saying this, verse 35 says, And when some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, Jesus is calling for Elijah. This is really just the crowd taunting Jesus more. They knew of Malachi 4, verses 5 through 6, which says Elijah would come as a forerunner to the Messiah. So they're essentially just taunting Jesus by mentioning Elijah here. Verse 36, And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him a drink, saying, Let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. This was probably not an act of compassion. They're probably just doing this to try to extend and prolong Jesus' suffering. And this is really just further acts of taunting Jesus. Verse 37 It says, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Now, as we've talked about before, Mark is very brief in his descriptions. I think it's useful to us to look at some of the other gospels to pick up exactly what Jesus said here. Let me take you first over to John 19, verse 30. And I'll just flip over there if you want. I'm just going to show you a verse or so over there. There it says, when Jesus therefore had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. When you look at the original language that's used here, that's translated as it is finished for us, it's actually tetelestai. What's interesting about that word is tetelestai is the word that's actually back then was stamped on bills to show that the debt had been paid in full. I really think a better translation would be debt is paid in full. That as Jesus was boring our sins, he paid the debt for us. It is finished. There's nothing more to pay if we just place our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior for the forgiveness of our sins. The other thing I want to show you that you can see in John 19, 13 is it says he gave up his spirit. So Jesus willingly committed his spirit to the Father. You can also see that in Luke 23, verse 46. Jesus willingly laid his life down. It wasn't taken from him. He did this willingly. Let's flip over to Luke 23, verse 46, and we'll see that. I'll just flip over there real quick. And it says, And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. 
And when we look at John chapter 10, verse 17, and again, I'm sorry I'm flipping around so much again this lesson, but that's what we have to do in order to really pick up the full picture of what's being described here. John chapter 10, verse 17, this is Jesus speaking. He says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. So Jesus gave his own life. A stronger power didn't take his life from him. This is what substitutionary atonement is all about. Jesus willingly gave his life so that we could then have eternal life with him by him paying for the debt that we can't pay. Going back over to Mark, verse 38, it says, And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This veil in the temple, that is the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. No one was allowed to go in behind that veil and into the Holy of Holies except the high priest once a year. And if anybody went in there inappropriately or if they went in there and they had not offered sacrifice for the forgiveness of their own sins before they went in, then they died. In fact, they would even tie ropes on the high priest on his ankle before he went in. So if he did die, they could pull him back out and not go in and die themselves. This was the area that people viewed as the presence of God. And when this veil split from the very top to the bottom, it's clear that because it split in that way, it was God's doing causing that veil to split from the top to the bottom. And that symbolized that by Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, we now have direct access to God the Father. We don't have to go to a priest. Only the priest could go and offer sacrifices directly to the Father prior to that time. And now that the temple veil was split, and then in A.D. 70, the entire temple was destroyed, there's no temple anywhere to even offer these sacrifices. Deuteronomy 12, verse 11 says sacrifices had to be in the tabernacle or the temple, and those don't exist anymore. I don't even know how Jewish people can say they have a religion or a faith because there isn't anywhere for them to go and offer these animal sacrifices anymore. So this splitting of the veil of the temple being torn in two from top to bottom, that symbolized that there is no more offering of animals for our sins. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice, the perfect lamb of God who gave up his life to pay the debt for our sins, and there's no more sacrifices that need to be made. We only have to place our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior to have our sins, past, present, and future, forgiven. And we now have direct access to God through Jesus. There's no need for priests anymore. We don't go to a priest to confess our sins. We don't go to a priest to offer sacrifices. We don't go to a priest in order to get our salvation. We go directly to God the Father through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't pray to anybody else as I described last time. We don't pray to dead saints. There's nowhere in the Bible that says pray to dead saints. We now have direct access to God the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit 
the Holy Spirit is living inside of us. So why would we go to anyone else? We can go directly to God the Father. I also want to point out that there was an earthquake at this time, and dead believers were raised to life after Christ's resurrection. Let me just show you where that is. That's in Matthew 27, verse 51. And it says, And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, so Jesus had to be the first one to be resurrected, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. So there were many people who saw these folks after Jesus' resurrection. But Jesus was the first to be raised. So Matthew is showing it was an act of God that tore the veil from top to the bottom. And now anyone can enter the presence of God by faith in Jesus through his atoning sacrifice. I did want to tell you that when I was there in Jerusalem in the area where Jesus was placed on the cross. I don't know if I was in the exact spot, but there's a church that's been built where they certainly believe that's the spot where it happened. But what was amazing is I was looking there at that spot. I didn't realize this before I went in, but I saw all these cracks in the rock right there. And the hair just stood up on my arms and on the back of my neck. And I got these chills almost that I knew that I was looking at a place where there had been this earthquake because I saw these cracks in the rock and in the geologic formation. It was just amazing, and I wasn't even expecting that until I walked up and began to look. I encourage you, if you ever have the opportunity to go, it's worth taking a look. So let's go back over to the text. I'm in verse 39. And when the centurion, who was standing right in front of him, right in front of Jesus, saw the way he breathed his last, he, the centurion, said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. So the centurion, who had been in charge and had probably seen everything that had happened, he had seen the way Jesus forgave his enemies as he looked down from the cross and he spoke to the criminal and told the other criminal that he would be with him in paradise that day. And then he saw the earthquake and the darkness. And he was probably present and knew that Pilate had declared Jesus is innocent. That all had an impact on this centurion. We're not told if he actually came to faith. The name centurion means he commanded a hundred soldiers. He was an important guy. But he clearly said this man was the son of God. Maybe he did become a believer through God's grace. Verse 40, And there were also some women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Less and Joseph. And I'll tell you who these people are here in a minute. And Salome. So Mary Magdalene, you remember Jesus cast out seven demons from her. We read about that when we were in Luke chapter 8, verse 2. The mother of James the Less and Joseph. James the Less, he's sometimes referred to as the son of Alphaeus. He's one of the 12 apostles. He's not James, the same James who is the brother of John, who are both sons of Zebedee. This is a different James. James the Less was an apostle. This James also is not Jesus' brother James. This is the apostle James the Less. And Joseph, or Joseph, we just don't know very much about him. There's not much about him in the Bible. 
Salome, that is Mother Mary's sister, and she is the mother of James and John, who are both apostles. John wrote the Gospel of John, and they are both the sons of Zebedee. So that's who these women are. There were other women there as well. We can see these are just some who were among the women that were there, who were followers and disciples of Jesus. Verse 41, and when he was in Galilee, they, these women, used to follow him and minister to him. And there were many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem. So there's lots of women here at the cross, at the foot of Jesus. Only the apostle John is present, at least that's what scripture tells us. But these faithful women, they never forsake Jesus. They never ran away. It's interesting then that they're also going to be the first to see the risen Jesus on Sunday. I did mention to you last time, I gave you a little detail on that, that the Apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John, he also wrote Revelation and also wrote the three epistles of John. John was present there while Jesus was on the cross, probably the only apostle that was in I talked to you about that last time. You can go listen to the recording, and you can also look at that in John chapter 19, verses 26 through 27. So the Jews, they wanted the bodies of the dead down off the crosses before 6 p.m. sundown so that they wouldn't be defiled before the Sabbath began. Let me show you that over in John chapter 19. I'll go over there real quick. Actually, you might want to read this because we're going to look at a number of verses there. So if you just go over to the right, Gospel of John, two more Gospels over to the right, and we'll begin in John chapter 19, and I'll begin in verse 31. The Jews, therefore, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. If they break their legs, they would die faster. It speeded up death. Then they aren't able to push up and continue to breathe. So it speeds up death. Verse 32, the soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other man who was crucified with him. So these are the two criminals on each side of Jesus. Verse 33, but coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. And it's interesting that in Exodus 12 verse 46 it says no bones of a sacrifice are to be broken and that's exactly what Jesus was the sacrifice for us and the fact that no bones of Jesus were broken also fulfilled the prophecy that's in Psalm 34 verse 20 that said none of his bones would be broken verse 34 I'm still in John 19 but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately there came out blood and water now, this shows that Jesus was human and that he was dead. I've read that if you're still alive, only blood would have come out. But since blood and water came out, that's what comes out of you if your side is pierced when you're dead. That also fulfilled prophecy that's in Zechariah 12.10 that says Jesus' side would be pierced. He would be pierced for our transgressions. He was also pierced by being hung on the cross with the nails driven through his feet and through his hands. Verse 35, and he who has seen, and that's referring to John most likely, he may have been the only disciple that was there who was an eyewitness of Jesus' crucifixion. And he who has seen has borne witness, and his witness is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may also believe. 
So this is John saying that he saw Jesus die on the cross. He's an eyewitness. Verse 36, for these things came to pass that the scriptures might be fulfilled, not a bone of him shall be broken. Again, that's from Psalm 34:20. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced, which is Zechariah 12:10 that I had previously mentioned to you. So going back over to Mark, they want to get Jesus down off the cross. Verse 42, and when evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, so he's a member of the Sanhedrin. Not much is known about Joseph of Arimathea, but we do know Scripture tells us he's a good and righteous man, and we're also going to see that he's a good and righteous man who believes in Jesus. It says he was a man who he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, and he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So this took a lot of courage. He's boldly asking Pilate for Jesus' body. It appears he has a lot of loyalty to Jesus because now he's going to be exposed. This is very risky for him. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. It's also interesting to me, let me show you some more background on him. When we look at some of the other Gospels about this right here, it says that he had not consented to Jesus' execution. We see that over in Luke 23:50. I'll go over there and read that to you. Luke chapter 23, verse 50, it says, And behold, a man named Joseph, that's Joseph of Arimathea, who was a member of the council, member of the Sanhedrin, a good and righteous man. And then it says in verse 51, He had not consented to their plan and action. You see that? So he had not consented to it. The other thing I want you to see is that he was actually a disciple of Jesus. He was a secret believer because he had fear in following Jesus, being a member of the Sanhedrin. Let's look at that in John chapter 19, verse 38. I'll read that to you. It says, And after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, Asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. He came, therefore, and took away his body. So this is a very bold move on the part of Joseph of Arimathea. The exact location of Arimathea is unknown, but it's believed to have been in Judea somewhere. We get that when we look at Luke 23, verse 51. But crucified victims' bodies were usually either given to the family if they asked for it, or they were tossed into a common grave or the garbage dump. But here we've got this believer, Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin who was a secret believer, secret disciple. He goes and asks Pilate for the body. Verse 44, And Pilate wondered if he, Jesus, was dead by this time. And summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. So the religious leaders, they had already asked Pilate to get all three bodies down before the Sabbath began. I read you that when we were in John 19. They had asked the soldiers to speed up their death. Verse 45, and ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. So Joseph, he was a wealthy man we saw. He had a tomb that he would use to honor Jesus rather than him being thrown in the mass tomb. This also fulfilled Isaiah 53, verse 9, where it says Jesus' grave was assigned with wicked men, but with a rich man in his death. 
So he was put in a rich man's tomb in Joseph Arimathea's tomb. Now, he's not going to be there long. It was very nice of Joseph to give Jesus this tomb, but he's not going to be in it very long. But God is working his plan so Jesus could fulfill prophecy to be in the tomb for parts of three days. Jesus had said that he was going to be in the tomb, that he would die but rise again on the third day. We see that in Matthew 12, verse 40, Matthew 16, verse 21, Matthew 17, verse 23, Matthew 20, verse 19. There's others as well as Mark 10, 34. The way you count this, the Jews counted any part of the day as a day. So he was in the tomb on Friday evening. He was in the tomb on Saturday all day. And then he was in the tomb on the first part of Sunday before his resurrection that we'll read about next time. So that's the three days. That's how you count it. All of this that I'm describing, it all took place before sundown on Friday. Now, I also want to point out that Joseph was joined by Nicodemus, who was a Jewish teacher and also a member of the Sanhedrin, who had met with Jesus previously. We read about that when we were studying the Gospel of John. Let me take you over there just to read some of that, kind of put those pieces together for you so that you can recall that. I'm over in John chapter 3. I'm just going to read this. I'm not going to dig into any detail. I'm just going to read it to us. I'll begin in verse 1. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him by night. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus had heard about Jesus' miracles. He's investigating it further, but he wants to come at night, so he's not seen by anybody else coming to inquire about Jesus. Verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? So Nicodemus doesn't comprehend that Jesus is talking about a spiritual rebirth. Nicodemus is thinking about the physical birth. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Jesus is saying spiritual birth is a different realm from physical birth. Verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And he's essentially telling Nicodemus, look, this is your opportunity, Nicodemus. You need to place your faith in Jesus while you have the opportunity. It's a spiritual mystery known only to God, and God brings people to faith when and where he chooses. And here's your opportunity. Verse 9, Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? So Nicodemus is really saying, What does this all mean? And Jesus is going to answer, Eternal life only comes through personal faith, a personal relationship with Jesus. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel? Remember, he's a member of the Sanhedrin. And do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak that which we know and bear witness of that which we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. 
when Jesus is saying we, he's talking about himself and the other disciples. He's basically saying, haven't you seen the reality of the changed lives in the disciples and the other believers? Verse 12, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things, meaning spiritual things? And no one has ascended into heaven, but he who has descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. Verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. You'll remember that Moses would lift up a carved serpent in the wilderness and people who were bit by the snake, if they looked, then they wouldn't die when they looked at the serpent. And that was actually a forerunner to show that Jesus would be lifted up on a stick as well. And if you placed your faith in him, then you would be saved. You would have salvation. Verse 15 that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. So Jesus is telling Nicodemus he has to place his faith in Jesus to be saved. Verse 16, one of the probably most well-known verses in the Bible, John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And I always point this out. It doesn't say maybe. It doesn't say if you believe, maybe you'll have eternal life. you got to do a whole bunch of other things, and we'll let you know when you get here, which many religions believe. There's no way to know until you get here, and you hope God grades on a curve, and maybe you'll be a little better than 50% and get in. That's not what it says. It says if you believe, you will have eternal life. Therefore, if you're ever asked, where are you going when you die, you ought to be able to say with confidence, if you're a Christian and you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, 100% sure I'm going to heaven, not because of anything I did, it's because of what Jesus did for me. Verse 17, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. There it is. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the Holy Begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light is coming to the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Okay, so that's when Nicodemus first came and met Jesus in person. And then I'm going to take you over to John chapter 7, verse 50. This is when he sees him again. And this is when Jesus is before the Pharisees and they're arguing with Jesus. And the Jewish leaders are wanting to seize Jesus. And they're arguing among themselves. And Nicodemus says to them, And it says in verse 50, Nicodemus said to them, this is the other religious leaders, and there's a parenthetical, he who came to him before being one of them. So that's referring to the encounter that Nicodemus had with Jesus that I just read to you. And he said, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? So Nicodemus, he's not defending Jesus, but he's only asking that the people calm down And let's follow our law that requires that charges be brought with witnesses and that Jesus be given an opportunity to defend himself. Now they sort of turn on Nicodemus, verse 52. They answered and said to him, you are not also from Galilee, are you? 
<laughs> so they're giving Nicodemus a hard time. He was just trying to say, we ought to go by our own law. And then finally, let me show you where it appears that Nicodemus became a believer. Let's go over to John 19, verse 39. And this is where I was reading just a minute ago, and I stopped short of these two verses. This is where Joseph of Arimathea comes in and takes away the body. Pilate grants him permission. Verse 39 says, And Nicodemus came also, who had first come to him by night. Remember, I described that to you a minute ago. And he brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds in weight. And so they, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And I'll continue on. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been laid. So here we see Jesus goes from virgin birth to a virgin tomb. This was most likely Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. The other thing about it being a new tomb, as it's described here, it only had one body in it since it's a new tomb. So it's going to be clear when there's no body in it when the resurrection comes. Verse 42 says, Therefore, on account of the Jewish day of preparation, because the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So let's go back over and finish up Mark 15, verse 46. It says, And Joseph brought a linen sheet, course we just read Nicodemus is with him took him down wrapped him in the linen sheet and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rocks and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb that stone was rolled there really to keep the animals and grave robbers out and as we saw in the account I was reading in John 19 he and Nicodemus packed the linen with aromatic spices to mask the odors that would be caused by decomposition Verse 47 then says, And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph were looking on to see where he was laid. So the women who we saw earlier were at the foot of the cross. They're now there watching this burial take place. It's not known if they knew Joseph or Nicodemus or even assisted in the burial. We aren't told that. But now Jesus has been crucified and buried and when we pick up next time in chapter 16, we're going to read about his resurrection because just having a dead Jesus doesn't do any of us any good. We've got to have a resurrected Jesus. That's what proved that he is God. He's been resurrected. It proves that his sacrifice was acceptable to God the Father to pay for our sins. And it proves that everything that he said he was is in fact true that he is the son of God, he came to pay for our sins, and by placing faith in him, we too can have our sins forgiven and eternal life. Now, I also want to address briefly some of the things that may have taken place during the three days between Jesus' death and his resurrection. There are several references in scripture that give us a little bit of insight. The first one I'd like to show you is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. First Peter is after Hebrews and before Revelation in the New Testament, towards the back of your New Testament. Let me read it and then let's talk about it a little bit. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah 
during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So what is this talking about? There's several different interpretations. The reference to spirits imprisoned. These spirits could either be demonic, like fallen angels, or they may be human spirits. One interpretation says that if the spirits that are referred to here are fallen angels, then perhaps those spirits were imprisoned because they were involved in some terrible sin before the flood in Noah's time, since Noah's flood is mentioned there. Peter doesn't tell us what Jesus proclaimed to these imprisoned spirits, but it's doubtful that it would be a message of redemption since angels can't be saved. The fallen angels they cannot be saved. We see that in Hebrews 2.16. But if these were indeed fallen angels, then probably what Jesus did was go down to declare his victory over Satan and all of his army. There's another view that perhaps what Peter is talking about here is these spirits are people that are currently in hell In this view, they say that Peter isn't referring to some special trip that Jesus then made during these three days down to Hades or hell to preach or proclaim anything to them, that perhaps Peter is just giving some parenthetical information about something that Jesus did previously in history. He's saying where he's referring to he was in spirit. He's actually referencing when the spirit was in Noah helping Noah in Noah's day while all these living people were living on earth, that wicked generation that rejected the message of Noah as he preached through the power of the Spirit. They then perished in the flood, and now they're the ones in prison. So it's as if Jesus previously, in the past, preached spiritually to these people in Noah's time in much the same way that God, through the Holy Spirit, preached through us today when we proclaim God's Word. And so that's another interpretation of that. In that interpretation, it didn't happen during these three days. Another passage that is sometimes looked to to try to figure out what Jesus was doing during these three days between his death and his resurrection is Ephesians 4, 8 through 10. Let me go over and just read that for you real quick. And it says, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, this is from Psalm 68, 18, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. So what is this talking about? Some say that these verses refer to some event that is not described anywhere else in the Bible, in that Jesus gathered all the redeemed who were in paradise and then took these redeemed individuals to their permanent dwelling in heaven after securing their salvation on the cross so that he essentially led them from Hades, which was the abode of the dead in general, to their new spiritual home that we're promised when we go to heaven. Another view of Ephesians 4, this part of Ephesians 4, is that this reference to Jesus ascending on high is nothing more than just a straightforward reference that Jesus' ascension to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father is just his returning to heaven victoriously as God. 
that Jesus had defeated Satan and he had taken captive all our spiritual enemies as well as the curse of sin. I guess really the best way to look at this is the Bible doesn't give us a lot of information about exactly what Christ did for the three days between his death and resurrection. But one thing we all know for sure is that according to Jesus' own words that he gave us in the Bible and on the cross when he was talking to the criminals, he said that he would be in paradise today. And so I think we can all say with confidence that Jesus' work of redemption to pay the penalty for our sins, it has been completed. And there's no way Jesus had to go to hell to suffer in hell. That did not happen. If he did go there during these three days, he really just went there to proclaim his victory over Satan. I hope that's helpful. So let me just summarize what we've studied today. And I'm just going to hit one thing, and that is when you look at what Jesus has gone through just for us, this horrible, horrible torture and treatment and the way he was treated and beat up and never complained and then took on all of our sins. He had never been separated from the Father's love like that ever before. He took all of that on, and he did it willingly, and he did it because he loves us. And all we have to do is turn to him and place our faith in him. All he wants is a personal relationship with us. It isn't about doing a bunch of religious stuff to earn your way, because none of that will ever work. And I can't get over how many religions think you got to do a bunch of stuff. It's about having a personal relationship. That's what gives you your salvation. And you should be assured of that as a Christian. There should be no doubt in your mind, if you have true saving faith, that you are going to heaven and that all your sins have been forgiven, even the ones that you haven't committed yet. You are going to heaven to be with Jesus. And we should be so thankful for what Jesus has done for us. Thank you for joining us today. Larry would love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to Larry at LarryO'Donnell.com. You can also sign up to receive this weekly podcast and Larry's weekly blog at LarryO'Donnell.com. We hope you will join us next time as we continue our study.